Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership. And we do so by talking with recognized leaders who do not merely have jobs, but men and women who have been called to their chosen sphere of influence. I'm typically better off script than on Me script. Too. Okay. Me too. Okay. I used to script things and now I, now I just kind of fly. That was so. when I first started, I, I, tr- I dabbled in ESPN briefly. But I found it very difficult for them to go, three, two, one, talk for 15 <laughs> seconds, and then you got to get out. And I'm like, right. this is not how you do life. That's you know? right. It's not, you're not used to doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, being, being so scripted in time. Well, David, listen, hey, it's great to have you on the show today, uh, The Joy of Leadership. And uh, we have a chance to really kind of share our stories with how we've progressed in life, kind of how God has brought us to where we are. Uh, you know, we're certainly not done yet, you know, sure. but you have a fascinating story. So, so uh, people in our area will know the name of David Green, uh, winningest quarterback at UGA and, uh, and have just had a, have had a great, have had a great ride. So talk to us a little bit. I, I really like to take it back to a little bit more like the beginning, if that's sure. all right. I'd love uh, to. Take me back into, into uh, kind of your earliest years in your childhood. Were, you know, were you always moving in the, in the direction of football? Uh, now you are working in insurance, and so we'll kind yeah. of get to that spot eventually. Uh, but walk us back to the kind of those earliest times. Sure. Was UGA always on the horizon? What does that look like? And the, the answer to that is no. Okay. So uh, when I first got started, I was just like a regular kid back in the 80s, and I kind of feel bad somewhat for the kids today because I felt like, you know, with technology and cell phones and all the stuff that's out there, you know, as a kid, you know, we were just outside all the time. Right. You, know, you got done with school, you drop right. your book bag, and your mom calls you home when, you know, it's time to eat. And so um, I was like any other, you know, five, six, seven-year-old. I actually started playing football when I was six. And I'll never forget, I was really, really bad. I was number 83, and I played <laughs> corner. And actually, I'll never forget this. Um, about midway through the season, uh, my dad pulled me aside, you know, one day after practice, and he said, son, look, because – it wasn't going very well. I was kind of timid and the whole deal. And he said, son, look, you, you don't have to do this. He said, you know, right now you're kind of, you're wasting your time and my time. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was really funny. He was just being lighthearted, but he was telling the truth as well. So he said, you know, you're kind of wasting your time and mine. Don't really have to do it. For whatever reason, I ended up getting my bell rung. And from then on, I started realizing like, you know what? I can do this. I can, I can at least take it. You know, and it's right. fine. And, and for whatever reason, just a spark or some kind of a flame just kind of took off because the very next year, I ended up, I was the starting quarterback and I was linebacker and we won on one of GFL. So right here in the Gwinnett Football League, it was seven years deal. old though. It, 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 so at six, we were terrible. Right. I was terrible. When I go to seven, it was just like a light switch went off. No kidding. And I just got it. That competitive juices started flowing. And I had some other good players around me. So, you know, football is like the ultimate right. team sport. But I had some good players around me, and um, and we won. We won the GFL championship like the next like five or six years mm. uh, at Shiloh. And played with David Pollock, who's on the ESPN right. now, and, and he was the only other three-time All-American at Georgia other than Herschel Walker. Uh, but I just grew up in a family. We love sports. Um, I played baseball. I played basketball. And I played football. And you asked me what you know, what was your favorite one. It was whatever sport I was in at the time. Okay. So when I was playing baseball, I loved it. That's all I wanted to do. And it was basketball season. That's the only thing I could think about. And and I grew up with families that were kind of the same way. You know, they, they were boys that loved being outside. They loved to compete and um, loved being a part of a team. And, and when you talk about leadership, 
you know, James, that's the one thing that I think the constant, I just, I enjoy being around and I always have since kid. I've always enjoyed being around other people. Right. And when you got to come and go say, hey, our goal at the end of this year is to be the best we can be. And right. if it's winning a championship, great. But at the end of the day, we want to just try to be the best we can be. So it started when I was, you know, six, seven, and eight when I was over at Shiloh, you know, south, the south end of the county. And um, when I got to high school was the first time I really faced real adversity. A lot of Georgia fans don't realize this. But my first year at South Gwinnett that I started was my sophomore year. I quarterbacked the worst team in the history of mm. our school. We went 0-10. Wow. We went 0-10. And <laughs> I'll tell you how bad it was. We were the last game of the season. We were playing Habersham Central. And our head coach at the time, he tried like this reverse psychology on the team. He said, man, do you want to be the first team in the history of South Gwinnett to go 0-10? And, and I was a sophomore as quarterback. But I, there were some seniors back there that had already kind of like cashed it in right. four weeks earlier. And they're back to going, you know what? That would be kind of cool. You know, we, we, <laughs> we would at least would be known for something, you know. And, and then so, you know, we had that sophomore season, and it was just brutal. It's so tough. Football is a game that, you know, so much preparation or so much hard work. And if you know you're going to go out there and get your brains beat in, right. it is not fun. Right. It's hard to get up for the game. We had a brand-new coach come in who's a legend in the state of Georgia, T. McFerrin. Changed the culture of the program. He had won state championships before. He had won one at Elbert County, um, and he actually went on a 1-1 um, you know, after that at Jefferson. But when he came to South Carolina, he literally took a team that was 0-10 and took us to the quarterfinals of the state championship the following year. Wow. It's amazing what leadership and great coaching, you know, can do to a team. And um, so as a sophomore, you know, a lot of people say, hey, did you know you were going to get a chance to, you know, play college ball? I was like, no, I was just trying to win a game in high school. You know, and we go into our junior season, and Coach McFerrin really thought I could play, but I had no idea if I really could. I mean, I, I was 0-10. That right, was my exactly. record. Yeah. And he really felt like I could play. Um, we started throwing a ball more. We had a really good tailback. And uh, next thing you know, I start getting offers all over the place. And so one season, 0-10, until the following year after that, my junior season, uh, George asked me to come to their camp. After the camp, Jim Donna says, I'd like to see you in my office. And I didn't think I did anything wrong. <laughs> so I was hoping it was good news. And he offered me a scholarship. Said, hey, look, just put this in your back pocket. Play your senior year. You don't have any pressure. Just know you got a place here. Um, the very following week, I went to Georgia Tech. And George O'Leary was the head coach there. Ralph Regan was the office coordinator. They had a really good mm. team. Joe Hamilton was a quarterback. And had a good camp. They said, Green want to offer you a full-ride scholarship and, you know, play your senior season, but you know you got a place here. And, and had a couple other opportunities. Ole Miss, I'll tell, you, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So Ole Miss, a uh, guy named Coach Versace, who stepped in for the Raiders last year when, when Gruden got right. fired, uh, he was the special teams coach for Ole Miss when I was getting recruited in the late 90s. Came to my house, and we took him out to dinner, and he said, Green, uh, Coach Cutcliffe was the, was the head coach at the time. He said, we really like your style of play. He said, we, we want to offer you a scholarship. And I said, yeah, but didn't y'all just sign Eli Manning last year? <laughs> and he said, yeah, we did. But he said, you know, he redshirted. We're not totally convinced he's going to pan out. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's I was awesome. like, look, I, I may be 17 years old, but I'm not that dumb. <laughs> uh, so, you know, ended up, I mean, that's how quickly things can change. Right. And 
the one thing it seems this day and time, and I, and I, and I kind of hate the direction some of this is going, you know, football in general and sports in general, it's so commercialized now mm-hmm. at a young mm-hmm. age. When I was in high school, I really just loved playing with my buddies. And I, the, the thought of, to me, it, it's at time, and maybe this is just my own little caveman brain, I, didn't, I couldn't really picture what college was going to look like. Right. But I knew I really enjoyed what I was doing now. For the love of the game. For the love of the game. And right. when, you talk about, uh, when you talk about a lot of good leaders and people that are really good at what they do, they're able to fully be present in what they're doing at that moment. And, and right now, I think so much, there's so many kids out there that are so worried about where they're going to be or trying this really, really tough goal of things that are outside of their control. I want to go play for Alabama. Well, yes, yeah, so does everyone else That's in America. Right. You know, why don't you enjoy what you're doing now right. with your teammates and, you know, take care of the things that you can take care of. So I was able to, to do that and earn a scholarship to Georgia. But when I was in high school, I really just wanted to be a high school kid. Right, right. You know, there have, there have been so many changes that have taken place on the high school level in the game. Uh, I served for 15 years at a school in Savannah. Uh, we were close enough to Florida at that spot where IMG uh, would oftentimes sure. step in and kind of take some of our studs. Absolutely. You know, some of the kids who are really performing at a high level, uh, a number of those kids uh, have, you know, have gone on uh, and uh, and have played uh, have played at the collegiate level, but also at the professional level. And uh, and it's 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 pretty amazing to see kind of how that becomes a business. Um, one of one of my students uh, from from that experience, he went on to IMG and then went on to UGA. And, uh, and just, he said, you know, you don't understand that you're not your own, that you, that you jump sure. into this. And to be jumping into that mindset at 16 or 17 years old, that's tough. You know, the, you know understanding yeah. how you're not in it just for the passion. You're, you're, you're already considering yourself, I'm a business person. You know, it's funny. I, I remember being a little naive at first. I mean, I graduated when I was 17, so I was one of the younger kids coming sure. out. But I remember when, uh, when Coach Rick first announced that I was going to start as a redshirt freshman. Um, you know, they started putting me in all these different, I mean, I had to take tests, like psychological tests, and they wanted to make sure that I could, you know, speak to the media and things to say and not mm-hmm. to say. And I started realizing, I was like, man, this thing's a little bit bigger than me just, you know, completing a couple of passes and, you know, and, you know, it's just weird. It was, um, it, it was an interesting time. I didn't fully realize how I think big maybe the stage was at the time and I might sound really weird because obviously you're playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people but you kind of they did a really good job we were living in a bubble at right. a certain degree you know I mean you still you're around your closest friends the majority of the time uh, when you really noticed that it was a much bigger world than what you were used to is when you would go different places mm-hmm. and I may drive a hundred miles from you know where I'm typically in and somebody will notice who you are and that's right. that's weird it took some uh, some time getting uh, adjusted to. And plus, uh, my leadership style in a way that I've always, the way kind of God wired me, is I've always really enjoyed just kind of like being one of the boys. Mm-hmm. And I had to really learn to uh, accept that role of, okay, well, you're going to have to be the one that addresses right. the media here or the team. Because I kind of was one that always enjoyed lean by example. Uh, I probably was more like a lineman in, uh, sure. if I was in a former life because right. I was just, I enjoyed being one of the boys. And, um, 
versus being a guy that's just above everyone barking out orders. How did you adjust to that? Was there was there training that UGA was putting you through? Uh, I mean, how, how do you adjust to that role of, of taking on that kind of limelight sure. at 18 and 19 years old? Well, it was interesting. As a player, um, the one thing that I've, I've felt like I've always done a pretty good job of doing is, is really understanding people and where they're coming from. And I knew as a freshman, my job was to, was really to shut up and just play. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my job to get into the huddle and tell a senior who's played Tennessee three times more than I have what we need to do. My job was just to go in there with confidence, quiet confidence, call out the play and execute it and, you know, just execute and, and be a leader and be someone that they felt like they could trust. And, so with amongst the teammates, um, I try to just have some quiet confidence and and do my job, and I think that was kind of the number one goal. When it came to dealing with the media, um, I did my best to not allow my mind to ever go to places where it was kind of unhealthy. Like, what if I don't play well today? <laughs> the state of Georgia is going to be <laughs> crushing me, right? Yeah, right, and right. so. Um, I've talked to players about this a lot. When I watch a football game now, I get much more nervous than I ever did when I played. Mm. Part of the reason being is when I played, and it sounds boring and it sounds cliches to, I think, a lot of fans, but when I played, it was I had to put all my energy and all my focus on what I'm doing right now. And whether I just threw a touchdown or an interception on that last drive, I got to turn a page. Mm-hmm. I got to keep competing, and I can't lose confidence, and I just got to keep going. And, and it sounds almost robotic, but that's the way it worked for me. Right. If I would have ever zoomed out in the second quarter and go, man, I just completed my last 15 passes, I'm pretty good, I would have probably thrown a pick on the very next play. Right. Or, you know, I've thrown two interceptions, and what are they going to be saying about me in the media? You're just going to go in a tank. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to just, you know, kind of almost just, you know, be to even kill and just compete just right. play hard you're only as good as the next ball right and, yeah. and it's really true and and your players you know we can sense and feel people's confidence and where they are in mental state. you can tell especially when you're around these guys day in and day out you can got it you can get a feel and you can look in someone's eyes and be like hey they're He's got. He's ready for this. He's thrown three picks, but this dude ain't lost any confidence. So I like this theme that, that you're you're already developing in here. We kind of back up and look at Coach McFerrin, who's who sees who sees something in you that's special. You go from an zero and ten to a winning season, and him recognizing something unique in you. You've mentioned briefly, Coach Rick. Uh, t- talk talk a little bit about how that how the position of leadership sure. has developed you as a leader as well. Well, I'll tell you, this is a uh, very similar to the situation with Coach McFerrin. Uh, Jim Donnan gets fired right after my redshirt year. They bring in Coach Rick, who was coached at Florida State, and Coach Charlie Ward, who's won Heisman Trophy. He just coached Chris Winkie, who had won a Heisman Trophy, and they were playing in a national championship game was his last game before he came to Georgia. My thought process is I had no idea if I could play. I mean, I really Mm -hmm, didn't. mm -hmm. And so um, my thought process was if I just do what this man tells me to do, (laughs) I've got a chance to be successful. That's right. And and I really – so I gained confidence because I knew I had a proven leader that was leading me. And it was amazing how I gained confidence right off the bat in a very uncertain 
situation. And I, and, and I started, and I was hungry. I, I think that was the other piece of it. There was a, uh, there was a strong hunger inside that I felt, it was a quiet confidence. I, I felt like I could do this, and I was hungry for it. Coach Rick recognized it. In his first head coaching job, he had an opportunity to play a guy that was going to be a junior who had already played the year before and been successful or take his chance on going with this redshirt freshman who had never taken a snap in a real game, but he had confidence mm-hmm. that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't forget, but, but when he told me, the day he told me I was going to start, he pulled me in his office and he said, he said, Green, you're going to start. We're you know, excited the whole day. He says, yeah. I just want to tell you this. He said, don't try to go out there and win the game for us. He said, quarterbacks lose more games for their teams than win. You've got a lot of good players around you, and all I really need you to do is just run our offense. Right. Don't try to do too much. And I'll never forget when he told me that because I was like, oh, okay. I, and, and I was a young kid, and, and I worked well when I was on a need-to-know basis. I, I've, God did not wire me. In, in the, when, when coach says, do this, I never really said why. I didn't question him. Mm-hmm. I believed in him. Mm-hmm. I figured he knew what he was doing. That's right. And so I would just do what he told me to do. My yep. first game I ever played in, I completed my first 15 passes. Mm. And I, it was just like boom, 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 boom. The hardest one was the first because, as you can imagine, you step on the field oh, for the first goodness. time. There's 100,000 people, and 10 yards felt like 30 yards, you know, because your body's just trying to get used to being in this situation. Um. But the one thing I felt over time is that it, it was easier to perform in games than sometimes it was in practice. Because when in a game, all the lines are, defi- are just defined perfect. you got clean uniforms and jerseys on. In practice, sometimes the field's not painted right. It's hard to see what's really 20 yards. In a game, everything's clearly right. defined. And I remember meeting with Aaron Murray when he first got to Georgia because he called me up. He felt like he could play. And I just tried to breathe confidence into him. I mm. said, buddy, you've done good now. Wait till it's in a game. It gets easier. And he's like, are you serious? Like, oh, yeah, man. That 20-yard post pattern, I mean, it's clear. You can see it. you got a clean jersey on. You're in a stadium. The field's beautiful. You'll see it. And so a lot of times with those younger kids, I'll just try to breathe confidence in them. That's awesome. And just let me – because you think you can do it. And you're passing on exactly what Coach Rick had done for you. It's exactly. What coaches had done for you. Oh, and Coach Rick, he, he was – he always had this quiet confidence about him, and he never made things more difficult than they had to be. I've been around coaches that can, uh, great coaches, in my opinion, can take something that looks complex and make it simple. Mm-hmm. And then I've been around other coaches that have taken things that were simple and made them extremely difficult. Right. Like when I got to the pros, what we would call R92 slant in high school was like, trade the dot slot right, you know, 200 jet X spacing. And that's just, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's just real wordy. and right. It's just, just you know, we, the big thing is we just got, the kids got to be able to execute, that's right? right. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard a coach tell me one time, because I told him I was getting into coaching. He said, Green, it doesn't matter what you know. It only matters what those kids yeah, know. Yeah, what they know. <laughs> you yeah. know? So yeah. you got to be able to communicate that stuff and, I had, the, I had the chance uh, to meet Coach Rick a number of times, but one of the times he was recruiting one of my students, Demarcus Dobbs, who oh, yeah. went on and, and played at UGA, had a great career and went on to play pro for a little while. And uh, it, it was amazing to me as I 
sat with Coach Rick. You know, I I went to football first, and he said, "Dr. Taylor, hey, listen, listen, I know everything about him with football. I don't need to know anything about that. All I want to know is what's his character like? What kind of a young man is he?" And I, first of all, I thought it was amazing that he would even want to meet with me sitting in my office asking those questions. But it, it really impressed me that he didn't want to just develop a player to play football, but he wanted to develop a man. It's unbelievable. Coach Rick is one of the most amazing men you will ever meet. I was so fortunate to get a chance to play for him. Um, I'll never forget. So I finished playing in 04. This is probably 2008 or 9. Uh, I get a phone call from him, and I hadn't played for him for five years. He's got a million things going mm-hmm. on. He's the head coach at the University of right. Georgia. It's a busy job. And I'll never forget to tell you how much it meant to me. I, I know exactly where I was. I was on 675 going to and from an appointment somewhere. And the phone rang. and said, Coach Rick. I'm like, oh, no. It's still that player in me is going, have I done something? <laughs> you know, like, did I mess up? He called me. He said, Greeny, what you doing? He always called me Greeny. And I said, oh, Coach, I'm just driving down the road working a little bit. And he said, man, I just want you to know. He says, I'm watching some old clips of when you played. And he said, I just want you to know I really enjoyed coaching you. That's and I was awesome. like, isn't that cool? I mean, even because a lot of times we're all busy. We all understand the fact that there's sometimes we have moments that we think like that, but we don't pick up the phone yeah. and make the call. That's right. And he took the time out of his busy schedule to pick up the phone, make the call. They also do this thing that's really neat. They would send Christmas cards throughout the year with their family, all throughout the year. Hmm. In different days of the year, I would get a random call from Coach and Miss Catherine, his wife, and they would just check and say, Green, I just want you to know I'm praying for you and your family today. He's just, he's... Yeah, greatness is not accidental. I mean, that, he's that's, good it's real. He's authentic. He, he is very authentic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... It, I was playing, I'll tell one last story, and, it, and hopefully this will show you know, really how authentic he is. I was playing tennis right after my career was over, and I lived in a Grayson area, and I played a guy out of Flowery Branch, we get done playing the tennis match, and he says, Green, I would, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, this is kind of odd. You know, he wanted to pull me to side away from everyone else. And he said, I just wanted you to know, um, back in 2002, right after y'all won the SEC championship, I was in a really dark place personally. And he said, one night, man, I just had way too much to drink and just out of the limb. I was kind of my wits in, my last straw. I called Coach Rick's office. Secretary answered. I don't know what all he told him, but Coach Rick was on the way down to Macon to speak to the touchdown club down there. Obviously, the guy was in a bad place. His assistant knew it, Miss Ann. She called Coach Rick. Coach Rick calls the guy, mm. talks to him for an hour, mm. and Coach Rick was late to the Macon touchdown club because he had spent an hour on the phone with this guy, wow. letting him know that his life matters, that God loves him. That's faith being lived out. You know, it's, I mean, but it's... There's countless stories like this. This is just one I, I found out after playing tennis one day. And he walks in there and just tells, you know, the folks with the, you know, the Macon Bulldog Club that, you know, the traffic was heavy or something happened, and he just goes on about his business. But uh, that's – you talk about blessed. I mean, I've just been so blessed to be around just incredible people like that. Yeah, and, just and, a class act. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, so it's just As remarkable. you jump back into your years at UGA – are there particular games or events that really stand out? Like, is there is there one that's just, the, you know, this is the thing that kind of defined 
the passion that I had or the joy that I had in that setting? Well, I think um, a really important game for our program was Tennessee, Coach Rick's first year, my first year as well, 2001. It's known amongst the Georgia fans as the hobnail boot game. And that's where, you know, Georgia had not won in Neyland Stadium in 20 years. Mm. We'd win the games we were supposed to win, and we'd lose the games we were supposed to lose. Well, this is, you know, Coach Rick's first year. We, uh, we were winning the whole game. Tennessee scored with a minute to go in a game. And it looked like, oh, this is just another Georgia team. They always underperform and this, that, and the other. And it was the only time in my life, Dr. Taylor, that I, f- I really felt the ground shaking. It was that, it was that crazy. Mm. But we had not, you know, allowed ourselves to think that we had already won a game, and we're still dialed in the whole deal. Well, they do a squib kick. We get the ball on a 40-yard line. We go bang, bang, bang down the field. We get the ball on a 10-yard line, burn a timeout. And we had called this play called uh, Pass 44 Haynes. We'd worked on a practice. And we could tell from preparation that when they got down into the red zone, Tennessee liked to play quarters coverage, meaning a corner's got a quarter of the field, mm-hmm. the safety's got a quarter. And everything we had showed up to that point, play action, we were I-formation team. The fullback would always go up to the left, and the tailback would go up to the right, and they were in the flats. Well, in quarters coverage, you know, we, you know the outside guys ran like a, like a post corner to occupy the safety. And instead of that fullback going up to the left, he goes up, step to the left, and then vertical. And Coach told me, he said, and it's perfect for a retro freshman quarterback, he said, Green, we're going to call pass 44 Haynes. He said, if it's quarters coverage, he'll be wide open. If it's one safety, throw it out of the end zone, and we'll go to another play. <laughs> and so, do you ever play, you, you're much of a golfer, play some golf bit, at yeah, all? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that feeling when you stand over like a two-foot putt, and you're like, I should make this. <laughs> but, but I know that's right. I can miss I've it I've missed too, them right? before. That's right. And so, as I stand, uh, as I get under center, I look and I see quarters coverage. I'm like, oh, my goodness, he is going to be wide open. And sure enough, he was. I mean, it was just, you know, a coach being able to put you in the right play and at the right time. And, and he always had this calm demeanor. And, and I really think it wasn't until we were on the bus ride back to the you know, plane they were still, I and mean, we were still trying to figure out, like, we're, we're emotionally exhausted. <laughs> right. But you, right. you're starting to figure out, like, we just we did just something won. pretty cool. Yeah. And then Larry Munson, who was, uh, you know, our famous legend. Annou- legend announcer, yeah. was, you know, we stepped on her face with the hobnail boot. And everybody's <laughs> going, what's a hobnail boot? You know? <laughs> but that, that was a huge moment. Um, and then I would say in Auburn in 2002 was a huge game because we had to beat Auburn to go to the, the SEC right? championship. And we play terrible on offense. It was the ultimate team game where our defense got them three and out the whole second half. And offensively, we had been knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And we get to a fourth and 15 where the odds are not great. And we still make the play in their stadium Mm. to win a game. Right. And it just goes to show there's a reason why you – you truly just compete to the end, and you cannot zoom out like a fan. And a fan, we sit up there and go, oh, man, things aren't going well or things are going great. As a player, you just have to play. And then you can worry about how you did after the game, but while right. the game's going on, you got to stay in the fight. That's right. And Because you never know, you know what could happen. And, and I think it just showed kind of the mental toughness that team had, and, and we went on and 
Won the SEC championship and beat Florida State in the Sugar Bowl that year. Awesome. So, so unbelievable success at UGA. Take me to the point where, where you're transitioning. Your, your time at Georgia is drawing to a close, and you are now going to transition into a pro uh, level. Right. Take us into kind of what transpires during that. Like, not only have, you know, just about all of our listeners never played in front of 100,000 people. Right, but, right. But certainly moving on to that next level of professional anything, but professional football is such a thing. T- talk, to, talk to us about what does that look like? Well, it was, a, it was a very weird time. It was unsettling because you know that you're going into a draft. And so, really, until draft time, you don't know where you're going. You don't know if you're staying in Atlanta or going to Seattle or where. You just have no idea. And as a player, you really have to get past the point of going, okay, I'm about to go and co- compete against guys that maybe have been your idols. Mm-hmm. And you've got to try to figure out going, hey, you know, we, we've got to change this mindset now. Well, this guy that you may have wanted his autograph five years ago, um, now this is a profession. And you're trying to compete against them and win and beat them and that kind of deal. So um, the time that you had on your hands, I think, was, was kind of difficult to manage at first because when you're in college, from a time management, I mean, from a time you wake up to the time you get to bed is almost scripted. I mean, you got to go here, you got to go to this class, this class, you eat lunch, you go to, tr- you know, you got to come over here, get your ankles taped, you watch film, you go to practice, you go to study hall, you eat dinner, and you go to bed. Right. I mean, your schedule right. is... Life is planned. It's planned. Right. When you're training to go to the NFL, it's going, spend your time how you wish. And you're going, for the first time, you're going, wow, this is true freedom, but that freedom could be dangerous if you're not using sure. it properly. So, um, and so, you know, I would... Wake up, I would train in the morning a lot of times. We may play golf or something in the afternoon. But um, it was an interesting time unsettling because you just didn't know where you were going to fit in and where you were going to go. But but an exciting time as well. You know, you're 23 years old, getting a chance. You know, you're going to you know, get a chance to go play in the NFL and, and, and figure out if that dream can stay alive. So, um, so sure you, enough. Do you already have an agent at that point in time? So I did. So Pat yeah. Dye Jr., who's in Atlanta, still still an agent. Uh, he represented me. It's a really – it's a weird time because you're almost doing life backwards right. because you're 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 coming into a lot of money early mm-hmm. when you probably don't need it, um, and you're you really don't have the same value and a concept that I would now at 40 years old. You know, you could go do a signing at a mall and walk home with 10 grand, and you're going, "Whoa, 10 grand! It took my right. my dad you know two months to make that, and right. he's grinding." Yeah, so the value of money and all um, is very, very difficult for young kids that are going into the NFL. And I'll say this, the NFL actually does a fantastic job on trying to prepare these young athletes how to handle this. Right. Because, you know, you've, you've They've never, changed the education. Oh, it's, 40 years ago, that wasn't the truth. And I mean, you look at NBA, NBA really got in some real trouble with yeah, that. And, They've had to change it. And you, f- you figure out taxes and you're going, whoa, I got to give what to who? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, you know, you, you just don't know that because you're a kid still. Right. You know, you've never done your own taxes and your parents have taken care of those things in, in the past. And so, you know, being able to surround yourself with a good team that can keep you grounded, um, is extremely important as you're trying to go to that next level. So tell us about that professional experience. You play for, for three different teams. So, so that was wild. So my first, um, it, it was kind of an interesting ride. I, I actually enjoyed my time in Seattle because I was a kid that was born and raised here in Gwinnett County. I go play in Georgia. So that four years, right. Dr. Taylor, it was a blur. 
I mean, it really was because there was so much going on. I was pulled in so many different directions. And four years is a long time mm-hmm. to start in one place. And so when I got drafted by Seattle, it was really an interesting thing internally for me. I was thinking, like, man, God brought me out here for a reason, just to kind of, you know, reset my soul a little bit just because Fonsa, I didn't know anybody there. And I'll never forget riding to the um, complex one morning and them talking. They're like, hey, y'all, there's this place called Chick-fil-A. And they're actually closed on Sunday. And I'm like, where have I gone? <laughs> I had a Georgia hat on, and they think it's a Green Bay Packer hat. With different, I'm like, where am I? You know. But it was a really uh, – my experience in Seattle was really neat in the fact that my wife, Veronica, and I, you know, we, we dated through – we were high school sweethearts, dated through college, and we got engaged, got married in 06. So we got to spend some time in Seattle and loved it. I was on some really good football teams, so my rookie year – we go to the Super Bowl. Mm. I was a backup. <laughs> Unbelievable. I go to the Super Bowl my very, very first year. And, uh, you know, I, I was a backup and just watching. But it was incredible just to be able to run out and be a part of that game. I'm dressed out. I mean, I had a chance to play if some guys got hurt and that whole deal. And, um, you know, just a fascinating experience to be able to see what the competition is like at the top. And people ask me, they say, what's the difference between college and pro versus high school and college. Personally, I felt like the jump at the quarterback level was a lot more difficult from college to pro than it was from high school to college. And it's the first time I really feel like I realized, I'm like, God did not all, he did not uh, make us all the same. I mean, there's some guys out there that are true freaks of nature. Yeah, that's right. Like, if it takes me six months to heal with an ACL, take this guy three. Right. They eat Wendy's every day, and they got 3% body fat, you know, in a six-pack. I mean, they're, right. they're born. Like, they're, they're just born with it. Walter Jones, who was a first-bout Hall of Famer, was our starting left tackle. Mm. One of the greatest athletes I've ever seen. If I'm going, if I wanted to create my own tackle, he would look just like Walt. Short legs, thick, long arms, could run like a 4840. And you know how he would train? He would push his Escalade around Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> no. I mean, and I realized for the first time, you know, we, we grew up where coaches go, you know, if you work hard and you do this, you got, you got a chance to make it. And I realized up there, a lot of these guys didn't start playing football until they were 10th, 11th grade. Right. They just have it. <laughs> they right. just. You were just born for it. They were born for it. Now, of course, they work hard and they learn how to, and they work extremely hard. But a lot of it has got to come natural mm-hmm. to you as well. Yeah, I, I've had a had a chance to meet Herschel Walker a number of times over the years, and he talked about his early training regiment uh, that he had never been in a weight room. He's not he did normal. push-ups and sit-ups. That's you know, but he'd do like a thousand of them at each sitting. You know, and doesn't sleep. You know, yeah. he's the guy that requires like three or four hours of sleep a night, and they're just there's peop, there's people out there that are literally just different like that. So so walk through here. Here you come out of you come out of Georgia, the winningest quarterback. And now we're we're in this pro league. You and I have had this conversation before, sure. but I find it such an interesting component of the story. Uh, you, you're traded between a couple of different places. Walk us sure, through kind sure. of what that yeah. feels like, you know, as so, you're going through there. Very very difficult time. The first time, so I got cut in Seattle, uh, go in 07. So I was there for in Seattle for two and a half years, and um, going into fall camp, my third year. Uh, you know, they pull me in the office and say, hey, you know, we're, we're releasing you. We're going to let you go. Very tough. First time I've ever been truly fired mm-hmm. in a job. Tough pill to swallow. My wife was six months pregnant. And I go, man, I got to figure something out quick. Uh, I get a call from New England Patriots. 
So I get on a plane, I go fly, they want me to work out. So I have a workout throw and they say, we want to sign you. And, and literally, Dr. Taylor, it's a situation where you go with just the backpack that you right. have with you right? and you just stay. And so, I mean, it's not like, you know, you go back home and you pack all your stuff. No kidding. You're, you're there and you just don't leave. It's wild. So that's it. it. When they sign you, you're on that. When, it, when you sign, you it's started. like, we'll see you at practice in the morning. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really that crazy. And so they, uh, you know, say, so say, hey, we, we like what we see. We'd love to have you. Um, why don't you stay here and with us? So yeah, I lived in Braintree, Massachusetts. Yeah, sure. My son was born in Boston. And I no remember kidding. thinking, oh, my goodness, I never thought my son would be a Yankee. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean I'm, born, I'm a kid from Georgia, you That's know. That's right. And, uh, and that was a really neat football season. So I'm in New England. And the, you know, the obvious thing is I'm playing with Tom Brady. Right. A little quarterback named Tom Brady. Sure. Won 50. He had 50 touchdowns the year that I was there in 07. And um, Randy Moss was a receiver. I mean, he's one of the best duos you'll ever see. Wells Welker and Junior Seau. You had all these great players. Team went undefeated, beating everybody by 50 points. Great lesson I learned from Tom. A lot of people didn't know this, but Tom had real bad tendonitis in his elbow that year. And we were at practice one day. It was like a Wednesday. And he's grabbing water, and his little arm just starts shaking because he's got real bad tendonitis in his elbow. And he is, when I say shredding the league, he's averaging four touchdowns a game, mm-hmm. killing everybody. And he's got real bad tendonitis. And I go, Tom, hey, man, why don't you just take the day off? You know, of course, selfishly, yeah, I'm, right, trying, sure. I'm trying to get a few reps in, right? <laughs> just take the day off. And he said, Green, have you ever heard of Wally Pip? I said, no, I don't know who Wally Pip is. He goes, well – you know, Wally Pipp played first base for the New York Yankees. He said one day he had a bad headache. He decided to take a day off, and they put Lou Gehrig at first base. Oh, man. And he said, you know what happened Wally Pipp? I said, well, I think I do. He never saw the field again. He goes, that's right. He goes, I don't want to be the next Wally Pipp. And he goes, as long as they, as long as you guys are over here, I'm the one on the field, they'll never know. <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating that because fascinating. the way, you know, Dr. Taylor, the way I saw – Tom is much like everybody else. At this time, he had already won three Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's won, what, six or seven now. He won three Super Bowls. He was married to Giselle. I mean, life was pretty yeah, good. not I mean, a bad life. Com- and this guy worked and trained like a rookie. He really did. I mean, he, he approached everything like he felt like his job was on the line. Mm-hmm. And, and he clearly did because even though he is just totally running away with the MVP race – he didn't want to come out and practice. Mm-hmm. And as part of the way he was able to get his job is remember Drew Bledsoe, who right. was the man. That's right. He, he was the man. Right. He gets injured. Brady comes in, performs well. And, you know, Drew just never saw the field again. Right. And so, um, it, you know, it's fascinating. I, so I, I played there, ended up getting released. It's tell you how the roller coaster of that business falls. I get released late in that season, get picked up by the Kansas City Chiefs on their active roster. I literally – go from the best team to the worst, worst team, team overnight. And I'm telling you, I go in this locker room, and it's right around Christmas time. They had not won since October. Mm. Just, I mean, just crushing for these guys to have to come to work every single week, lay it all on a line, and you're going to get crushed on Sunday. And I'll never forget, the last game of the year we played the New York Jets. I was on the active roster. I had a chance to play, and the offensive line, was, it was not good. 
And I knew I was going to get whatever my check was going to be. It was going to be that regardless if I played or not. Right. And the quarterback's just getting killed. And it's cold. We're in, we're at the Jet Stadium, and uh, it's cold and rainy. It's late December, and I'm just thinking, man, let's just get out of here. I don't want a title. <laughs> I don't want a snap of this because this quarterback is set up for failure. And right. it was. So um, went on and played there. And then my last stop the very following year was Indianapolis. And what an incredible um, – culture there that tony dungy had mm. built you'll love this he's uh, a guy i've never met and i've i have always he's the coolest yeah. coolest guy to ever play for and be around obviously as a believer and understanding um you know the what the bible says about servant and a servant heart he would actually run the scout team mm. so here he's the head coach of the wow. football team you got to stand at the top in the NFL, it's like the the peons are the ones that run the scout team cars, the GA, the assistants, mm-hmm. somebody who's trying to make a name for themselves and climb the ranks. Those are typically the ones who run the scout team cards. The head coach either sits in the tower or he's just sitting, you know, alone, just trying to observe everything. Observing everything. Coach Dungey didn't do it that way. He ran the scout team and really mm-hmm. invested in the scout team players. Unbelievable. So I, Loved it. And I'll never forget on the bye week, our team was one and two, which was very rare for the Colts. The Colts always started out normally four and oh, and it was a very weird time to come in over there because it was there was a lot of tension in the building. And we had our bye week, and this is not long after uh, Coach Dungey's son had committed suicide the year before. Mm. And we had the week off, and it was a time when you would think as a leader, there's probably a lot of pressure. You guys need to stay in the facility and figure this thing out you know, for the rest of the year. Like on Wednesday, he let us go and said, guys, y'all need to go be with your families and, and really stressed and talked about the importance of family. And he wanted us to have this time for a few days where we could unplug, be with our families. And he was choked up and, you know, just talking about it, you know, cause he could just, you know, you could just feel the, the emotions. I don't know if it necessarily had to do with what had happened to him, but obviously family meant a great deal to him. And he understood the importance of you know, go unplug being around your family for a few days and how that can help you have a clear head when it's time to come back to the office. And I just thought that was really, um, I remember that vividly in the way in the way he communicated that. I was like, man, this is just a neat man to play yeah, for. That's right. Um, You've been around some quality guys who have just really built into your life. It's it's phenomenal. I really have. I've, I've, I've been blessed to have been around some some great leaders and because you look, even starting back to high school, if you know, T. McFerrin doesn't come to South, I probably don't go to Georgia. That's right. You, you, you yeah, you trace go. it all the you, way back. You, you and never you, know. you see the hand of God, like, through exactly. your whole – You know, and, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, we can look back and, and say, uh, you know, in my own life, I, I look at some catastrophic, difficult situations that at the time it felt life-ending. Sure. But then a few years later, you realize it was literally that event that allowed me to be here That's in right. this situation. And, and we, we see that with relationships. We see that yeah. with... With, with situations. So uh, for you, here, here you are, you come out of this UGA setting for, I would imagine most of our folks have been to a UGA game. Uh, just the, the, the unbelievable tone of the game and you've been godlike, you know, and not because of what you've wanted, but that's just what people sure. do to athletes. They place them sure. in a different place. Jump into the pro setting and did not have the same experience. That's right. Was that hard for you? Like, how you know, you, you're a driven guy. You've been a guy who's been pushing yourself hard. How do you digest that idea of, of moving from one to the next? That's tough. Yeah, that, it, it was a very difficult time. You know, I remember vividly, I'd always dreamed of just trying to get to the next level and get to the next level, and, I, and I'd loved it. 
when I got to the pros, the same passion that I'd always had for the game and probably had taken for granted because I'd always had that that urge inside mm-hmm. just to get just to be better. I had lost some of it. And and I don't I think part of what I enjoyed so much about high school and college, that brotherhood, camaraderie, right. living together, doing life together. When you get to the pros, it really is a business. I don't right. want to downsize the fact that I know there's plenty of great relationships being built, and I, I get all that. But it really is more of a business. Right. You're still paid employees. You're paid employees, and it's just a, it's a different dynamic. And I really um, – I just naturally thrived better in the, the setting where it's me and my boys against you and yours mm-hmm. versus, hey, I'm David. I'll be the quarterback today, and um, – you know, and it's just like a revolving door right. with lockers. It right. just, I don't know. I, I think it just, to me, it, I really struggled in that environment mm-hmm. somewhat. Mm-hmm. And I just, I got to the point where, um, and I realized, you know, there's only so many quarterback jobs in America. There's less than 100 in, you know, in the NFL. And at least from the starters, of course, I was around some of the best. I was around Brady and Manning and Hasselbeck right. in his prime. Right. I was like, man, I, you know, those guys could spin the ball every single day with like they could shut their eyes and complete 95% of their passes. And I got a point where I was like, you know, I may, I may be on my A game one out of every three or two, but um, there gets to a point where you go, man, I either have all of what I need or I got enough to try to hang on for a while. Mm -hmm. And and then maybe I'm going to have to rely on that degree that I had, That's right. you know? And, and so it was tough to, uh, there was two dynamics going on that flame that had always propelled me forward. And I was losing some of, it cause I just didn't enjoy the dynamics mm-hmm. of the game. Like I'd, I'd always had. And then I was beginning to realize these dudes are really good. Right. Right. And, and that, that was tough. And then, cause at that point when I came home and most people still saw me as David green, they saw the helmet, shoulder pads and a face mask. And, right. And that was transitioning. That's right. Now, your your bride, Veronica, is she coming along for each of these stops along the way here? You know, Dr. Taylor, she, uh, you talk about a true saint, unbelievable, most selfless person I've ever met. She, um, yeah, so here is six months pregnant. I get fired from Seattle. We go to New England, basically meet a brand new doctor, and it's like, hey, will you have our baby here in a few? <laughs> There's not many women that would, right. that'll do that. And, and she did. She was unbelievable. And uh, once, I got done in New England. We went ahead and, and just moved back to Atlanta. We wanted to kind of settle there, and then I would kind of fly back and forth. Okay. When I was in Kansas City, I was doing a lot of back and forth. I was there on Monday through Thursday, fly home, come back on Sunday, do it all over again. Mm-hmm. And and that really brings me to kind of kind of this this whole idea of the work life balance. It's it's a it's a theme that we talk about a lot on this show. Sure, uh, because I I think as leaders we have so many challenges around us that could consume all of our time. Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. And we have to make that determination as far as, as far as what is going to take priority in our, in our lives, you know? And so when you look at that idea of the work-life balance, you, you have now reached the pinnacle of your football career. Sure. uh, That we're, we're super happy about your pinnacle because now you get to coach middle schoolers. That's right. You know? (laughs) And so, and so here here you are jumping in with our teams and and coaching with us, which I absolutely love. I mean, I just, it it just, it makes me smile every time I see you out there. Uh, But, but just working with, working with our kids, you're learning that 
that work-life balance. So, so what, what are some of the lessons? You're, you're working for a great company right. uh, where you are cherished. Talk to us a, some of those life lessons on work-life balance. I'll tell you one of the greatest exercises I ever went through, and I would highly recommend anybody listening to do this. Probably about five or six years ago, I had somebody that I really, really respect and I would consider him a mentor. Put me through this exercise. He said, David, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this make, we're going to make believe, we're going to say it's your 80th birthday party. And your friends, family, coworkers, they're going to do a tribute to you on your 80th birthday, okay? And while you're there, here's a pen and a paper, and you're going to take a day, couple days to think about this. But he says, I want you to pick three people, and I want you to write what you want them to say about you on That's your good. 80th birthday. It's good. And at first, I was like, wow, that's really deep. But the more I went through that exercise, I realized the importance of kind of working backwards somewhat in life. Mm -hmm. You kind of fast forward to, you know, what you want your legacy to be when you're 80 years old. And what that really does, it helps you really understand where your priorities need to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter if, you know, if, you know, if you may try to make a gazillion dollars, that's, that, that, would, that had nothing to do with any of the three people that I talked about, you know, that well, I wanted them to say about me. And so that is something I've always kept on my desk because it helps me do realize. Do you really, you still have that? That is great. It helps that. me realize who I really want to be. Right. And I think as we all realize from time to time, as we go through life and you got challenges and things going on, you know, you can realize that, yeah, I can really get off track here if I'm not intentionally staying on track. That's right. And it's just a great reminder to me. I put a lot of time and effort into that exercise realizing, okay, am I, am I being the man that I really want to be here? That's right. And, and, if, and if I'm not, let's, you know, let, I got to make sure I get on track here. And so uh, I, fe I felt like that was a great exercise for me. He almost said, look, let's form a blueprint of what you want your life to look like and then you can balance your life based on does it fit in what you want that blueprint to be. And that's been great for me because I am in the business of production. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I'm on a base salary. You right. eat what you kill. Right. And uh, that can be really good or really bad. If you can produce, the sky's the limit. If you can't produce, well, you know, you're going to have to figure something out. And the challenges are really both ways. One, there's always constant pressure. You know, even when you go to the beach at times, you're going, man, I got to make sure I take care of things. I just right. got to keep them moving. But it also helps me with that blueprint because I can realize at times that, you know, there is a certain point where I don't want to be going into the office on Saturday sure. morning. I'm not missing my son's game That's right. to go chase another dollar here. Right. And so it's helpful because – I have developed my own blueprint that works for me. Right. It doesn't necessarily work for my partner or my partners. That's fine. You know, they got they can figure out their own blueprint, but I got to figure out what works for me mm -hmm. and our family. And back, uh, back many many years ago, uh, I used to have when I was I was teaching on the high school level for a few years, and uh, I would have my juniors and seniors. We would start the year by having them write their own obituary, which uh, was a super That's cheery cool. way to start yeah. the year. Uh, <laughs> but, but really what, what we ended up doing is, we, you know, I would, we would take it as a really serious assignment to say, all right, who are you going to be? That's right. And, and literally it's, the, it's, it's your labor, it, it's your work ethic yep. uh, that will determine whether you get to fulfill some of these dreams. Uh, I was a professor on the college level for a number of years and did the same thing with all of my freshmen. 
uh, that every time I was doing that, I, you know, and, and, and it was kind of amazing to see the kids would kind of jump into it as a joke, but then that the, so many of them would take it so seriously and it allowed them to, to begin to understand what comes later. I, I know that you've mentioned it about kind of in your experience at Georgia that you almost don't recognize how big this is, you know, until you're in it. And, and that can happen for all of us where we miss the idea of just how precious that's right. This particular time in life, this particular one little chapter matters. There's no doubt. And a lot of times it ends up being like a, a funeral or a death in the family or you go visit someone in a hospital, right? which you'll really realize, going, man, I really got to start making sure I'm enjoying right. all these things. Right. And, um, and I think that's the great thing about Scripture and when, you, when you're reading in the Bible and, you, and Jesus as well, is that's a lot of times that's what he does when he transforms your heart. You know, you, things that you typically would be like, ah, it's no big deal. You know, simple conversations that you may have had in the past. You go, man, I really just enjoyed you know, getting, to, getting to talk to my dad every day. Or, you that's know, right. just yeah. little things and that a lot of times. It. And appreciate what yeah. you got. Yeah. yeah, There's no question. So, so you, you brought up that idea. How do you incorporate faith? How has faith lived out in your life? You're a faithful guy here sure. uh, at the school volunteering, and, and, and I see you in your role as dad. I see you in, sure. in your role as husband. How, how, do you, how do you apply faith to your everyday life and walk? Well, I think number one, um, and I kind of developed this because I'd failed enough where a lot of decisions I made early on as a kid, it was just based off what I felt at that moment. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of thought. I wasn't seeking God for, you know, for direction. And <laughs> I think anybody who, who can relate to this go, yeah, you know, sometimes you end up getting bit because of that. You know, and I talk to my kids a lot about this now when I talk about faith. I'm like, look, guys, this is not just a fad. I mean, this is something when you talk about your faith, when I engage, you know, God, and I'm asking him for direction, whether it's a big decision, uh, whether it's, you know, where we're moving to or, you know, different things within, within our family or really direction on where we're going. I'm asking God for direction. And, and whether it's through scripture, whether it's through friends or family or other people, and I get to a point where I'm like, you know, I really feel at peace in the direction I'm going in. The thing that I found, Dr. Taylor, is regardless, really, of the results, I'm at peace, and I feel like that's the direction I was supposed to go in no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so when I've made directions in the past where I was not really seeking God's wisdom, I may go, man, I was really a bonehead move, and, mm-hmm. I, and I, how do I get out of this, right? But when I've really spent the time and I've engaged God and asked him for direction on where I'm going, and I've taken the time, and, and we've all been there probably at different times where you're in a sermon or you're at church, and you go, man, the pastor is talking to me today. You know, you've kind of mm-hmm. had those feelings. Or I've read, a, a, you know, say a chapter in the Bible, I've read it a million times, but today he's really, it's jumping out at me. You know, right. where you sometimes the, Absolutely. He, uses the, he uses his word in different ways at different times in your right. life. And when I've engaged him that way, um, it just has given me the confidence and the peace to move forward, regardless of which direction it goes afterwards. Yeah, I have the peace, and ultimately, that's what we all want. That's we right. just want peace. And you know what? What has amazed me through the years, my my, my own two children make fun of me because I I talk about the toolbox of life an awful lot, probably more than I should. But I, but I think about your toolbox to even be able to know how to develop that kind of work-life balance and faith balance. You know, if you look at who's placed tools in your toolbox, you, know, you, you, you back that up and, and you can see how Coach McFerrin probably put a couple tools in your toolbox. 
Coach Rick put a couple of tools in your toolbox. Coach Dungey puts a couple yeah. of tools in your toolbox. That you look at the, the just the the development of somebody who's willing to be faithful right now, and I'm going to be willing to faithful in the next step, yeah. and then to learn those lessons to to as we go through life to have a, a more full toolbox for living sure. than we did the week before. And I'll tell you this too. I would say my dad too. My father is one. I've, I've learned a lot from him because my dad loves people. And they used to joke around and be like, Rick Green, he's the governor because he's the guy that <laughs> he's the guy that you go to the beach and you walk down a beach. He goes, son, come here. Here's Johnny over here. They're from Louisiana and he's a general contractor. And <laughs> you got to meet Sally over here. They're from Kentucky and they're down here for two weeks. That's just my He dad. just knows everybody. He's yeah. the type of guy that loves people. Right. And I, you know, for whatever reason, God kind of wired me the same way where awesome. I've enjoy, I enjoy people. I, I enjoy people that are very different than me. I love learning about how different, how people see things through different lights. And, and I really gained that from my dad. And so when, you know, when people ask me about, you know, why do you like coaching? Why do you like, yeah, I love being around people mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. in general, always have my dad's that way. Uh, as a kid, I didn't realize at the time because I, I was the I was the kid at the ballpark. We were always the last car in the parking lot because my dad had been talking to somebody else's dad for an hour after that's the right. game, and that's just that's just the way he was. But I've kind of um, that's why I'm in the business I'm in. That's right. I'm in the, the people business. That's the people business. Just, just happened to sell insurance. The, exactly. Yeah. And so um, I give my dad a lot of credit for that, and he always really taught me, you know. We always respect everyone at the beginning. You always give mm-hmm. everyone a benefit of the doubt until there's a real reason not to. Yeah. But you don't lead, you know, leery of people. You lead and you assume that people are, are That's right. Are, are assume good the folks. best. Assume sure. the best. And my dad taught me that. And I've always kind of embraced that as well. And um, and I think that's really helped me because outside of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm around people all day, every day at work, and I come here, and I've got 40 kids on our mm-hmm. football team now, and there's a lot of parents. and per- So being able to enjoy people is a big part of it. Well, you live it out authentically here. Uh, it has impressed me how authentic you are. Uh, it has impressed me your humility. It's something that, you know, we're so used to guys kind of being their own their own best uh, best agents, you know. Being, right. And, and I just, you know, you have just always approached everything with humility. I, I think that makes a big difference for the people who, who watch you live, right? You, yeah. You're still in the limelight in what you do. There's a lot of people watching, watching how you live, and and uh, you know you, you you definitely you know outkicked your coverage on your wife. She's a great lady. <laughs> That's I not feel the first time I've heard that. <laughs> I feel the exact same way about my wife. I feel like I didn't deserve that at all. But but we watch you be a dad, and and we watch you be a husband, and uh, and you do so with humility. You do so with faithfulness. David, hey, listen, it has been great having you on the show today. Uh, it's great serving alongside you here at the school, and uh, man, we're just excited about what God's going to be doing in the in the future here. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Taylor. It's always always good to be here. It's exciting things at the school. It's uh, it's amazing how this thing has, has grown like it has. It's exciting times. That's some good things. Thank you, brother. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining us on the Joy of Leadership podcast, where we emphasize the blessings of leadership and our call to this vital role. 